Lord. Uh, I welcome you again this morning uh, as we continue our series through the book of uh, Galatians. And um, I'm grateful for the Lord has uh, given me this morning. Uh, let's, let me let us pray together one more time uh, and ask for ears to hear. Lord, we gather together now to hear your word. I ask, Father, by the power of your spirit, that I might speak only what's true, that your people might hear and believe only what's true. And I pray, Lord, that we may, with one heart and soul, heed the words that you speak to us today, that you would change us into the divine image that you would purify us, cleanse us, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That you would wean us from the world and our infatuation with it. And give us the sure and steadfast hope of eternal life and the age to come where we will dwell with you forever in a world free from sin. Therefore, Lord, let us live as people of light who flee the darkness before whom the darkness flees. And we pray, O Lord, that you would teach us to love one another as you have loved us. What a calling. I pray that you would help us to love those. Ministers, minister to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Um, I, want, I want to read you this morning um, a short little a paragraph about Charles Spurgeon's mother. This is taken from a biography written by Arnold Dalimore of of Charles Spurgeon. This is about Spurgeon's mother. He says, Since the father was so busy, the task of bringing up the family fell largely to the mother. She was an exceptionally devout and gracious woman. And the son, James, stated, quote, She was the starting point of all the greatness and goodness any of us, by the grace of God, have ever enjoyed. Charles looked back on her with deep affection and gratitude, and he tells of her reading the scriptures to her children and pleading with them to be concerned about their souls. I cannot tell you how much I owe of the solemn words of my good mother, he wrote. I remember on one occasion her praying thus, Now, Lord, If my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. The thought of my mother bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience. How can I ever forget when she bowed her knee and with her arms about my neck prayed, Oh, that my son may live before thee. Spurgeon's mother felt an agony of affection. 
for the souls of her children. I think if we rightly understand what this Bible teaches, we will have agony over the souls of other people. We will care. We will love. We will long for them to know our Lord and Savior. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Paul's love for the Galatians, his appeal to them, and the agony of his affection for them. We're going to read it in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. So if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The word of God. You may be seated. We're going to see three things in our text this morning. The loss of love, the purpose of pride, the agony of affection. The loss of love, the purpose of pride, the agony of affection. First, the loss of love. So remember, again, our context, Judaizers, Uh, have come into the churches of Galatia teaching a false gospel that it is not enough to believe in Christ, but you also must keep the Jewish law. And Paul has made both historical and uh, theological arguments concerning his independent authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and as, as well as arguing from the scripture that our salvation is by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we are saved uh, by our faith in Christ and by virtue of our union with Christ by faith and not by works. And he he, he is trying to show that the law was temporary, given by God for a period to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. So that now God's people, the, the, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham have come through Christ and are fulfilled through Christ by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that now the, the true children of God and heirs of the promise of God are those who, not, who do not share the blood of Abraham but who share the faith of Abraham and the spirit of the living God. But here in this section, Paul kind of takes something of an aside from his argument because he's become overwhelmed with personal emotion for the Galatians. And he makes a personal appeal to them here on the basis of their relationship. He, call, he says, brothers, brothers, 
I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. He begs the Galatians to come back to become as he is because he has become as they are. Think of the irony. Paul, a Pharisee, member of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Jew of Jews, and yet because of what Christ has come to do in fulfillment of the law, Paul recognizes and understands then that the law that he was so utterly devoted to has now been fulfilled in Christ, and he's no longer required to keep, uh, the, to keep the law as a means of his as the means of his right standing before God. And so Paul, as one of the devoutest Jews you can imagine, now feels the freedom in Gentile context to act like a Gentile, to not keep to the dietary restrictions, to, to, to not be distinctly Jewish. He has become like them, and then the Gentiles that he has proclaimed the gospel to in Galatia, they want to go back to Judaism. And he's telling them, I have become as you are, become now like me. Who understands that our right standing before God is not based on the law, but on what Christ has done for us. So there's a great irony. He's appealing to them to become like he is. He says, don't go back to the very thing that God is putting away. Don't go back. And he, then he makes this personal appeal. He says, he says, I preached the gospel to you first because of a bodily ailment. It's, it's not completely sure what that means or maybe or even what the ailment was. I mean, some people think it was his eyes because he tells them you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me if you could. Although that could have been an expression. We're not sure. But regardless... Uh, something happened to him, some kind of physical ailment, some kind of sickness happened to him that contributed to the reason why he was among the Galatians and, and, why, and the way in which he shared the gospel to them. And he said, and he told them, he said, you didn't despise me. You loved me. If you know, you know that caring for someone who is sick can, can be a great burden, especially if it's someone you don't know that well. And Paul's coming and he's preaching this gospel of a risen, glorified Lord, and he's coming to them with some kind of serious, serious physical ailment. It would be easy for the Galatians to say, what is this that you're preaching? Who, where is this great God that you're talking about? It would be easy for them to despise Paul and his message, but Paul said, you received me as an angel of God. You received me as Christ himself. In other words, the love that they showed to Paul in his proclamation of the gospel to them in the midst of his sickness was not just a reception of him as a person, but it was also a reception of his message. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The fact that they received Paul at first with such love and affection was, was, Paul said, a sign of their blessedness. It was a sign of God's grace at work in their heart. God was already at work in them such that they received him in the midst of his trial and that they cared for him and loved him and received his message. And Paul says, what grace was at work in you? 
what blessedness God gave you. But then he says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? These Judaizers come in and they are undermining Paul's authority and they're undermining Paul's message. And Paul says, what happened to your blessedness? What happened to you, Galatians? What's going on? Now now that these people have come and now I have the boldness to tell you the truth, you now count me as your enemy because, I'm try- because I love you and I'm speaking the truth to you over and against the lies of these false teachers. Did you know that there are people who appear to have a good start in their walk with the Lord and then they just walk away? They just turn away. It happens all the time. Now, Paul, he is, he's personally wounded by them. He's personally wounded, but it's not just that. He, he loves them because their turning away doesn't just hurt Paul, but it hurts them. Their turn to lies uh, away from the truth is not just, it doesn't just pain him as someone who loves them, but it's going to destroy them if they continue to walk down that path. And there are lots of people today, they walk down that path. They start off strong, but then they fall away. And you wonder, and it just makes you wonder, and that's what Paul says, it's like, what happened? What happened? What's going on? How can we explain their passion and their love at first, and now it seems that it's totally gone? Well, I think biblically, there, there are two options when we see this happen. There are two options. The first option is that the person may be a genuine but a weak Christian. They may be a genuine but a weak Christian. They may, it's possible that they may be young or immature in the faith, undiscipled, untaught. They haven't developed spiritual disciplines to feed themselves. They haven't got involved in the local community where they can experience accountability and, and, and right teaching and, and people to pour into their lives. And they may have faced certain different, difficult circumstances in life that they found difficult to overcome. People have come into their lives and appealed to their sinful desires and affirmed them in it, and which made it feel very tempting to them. And they enter into a period of uh, fleeing from the Lord. And then the second option, of course, which I might say is probably actually much more common, and that is they were never a true believer to begin with. That is, the Bible is actually remarkably clear that you can have experiences of God's power and God's grace and God's goodness and not really know God. Jesus warned people. He said, you will prophesy in my name. You cast out demons in my name. And I will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. happens maybe they had the blessings of growing up in a godly home or 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 attending church regularly 
And so they had these experiences of grace. They had, humanly speaking, number of spiritual graces in their life. And those manifested. So what manifested itself in terms of just their upbringing, but it was not really a change of their heart. And then when opportunity arose and came and different influences came into their life, what was really inside finally came out. This is a warning for us. How do you know the difference between the two? How do you know the difference between someone who is genuine but weak Christian or someone who is never a true believer? The way you know is repentance. If they never repent, we, the Bible, if a person does not repent, the Bible makes very clear we have no reason to think they're a Christian. We just don't. If there is not sorrow for sin... Brokenness and turning. That's why Paul, uh, the Bible, it says, test yourself. Examine yourself. Works do not save you. It is faith. Uh, works are the fruit of the root of faith. But if a tree never bears fruit year in and year out, it's probably dead. And this is a warning for us that we must be committed to the truth. If you are being led astray and someone comes, if we are being, if we're wandering from the Lord, then do not despise when someone comes to you and, and, and calls you out. It has to be and, and, and is pleading with you to bring you back. James says, whoever brings a sinner back from their wandering has saved his life. The Galatians, Paul is confronting the Galatians, and they have a choice to make. Nobody likes to be confronted, but sometimes we need it. God confronts people all the time. And either you will respond to it with humility and repentance, or you will harden your heart. We must be committed to the truth. We must be humble enough to come back. We must beware of loving our desires more than we love God. That's what it is. That's what happens. We are enticed. People come, and they affirm your sinful desires. And the more people who affirm you in it, the more you feel like it's not a big deal. The more you feel like those who are telling you your sin's going to lead to destruction, where they're just old prudes. Maybe. Or maybe they love your soul. And you're on the fast track to destroying it. And this is also this is why it's also so important for people to be invested into the Christian community. Your job won't last forever. Your hobbies won't last forever. That football game won't last forever. The church will last forever. It's not important that you're I'm I'm gonna get myself in trouble. It's not important. It's not important that your child plays soccer every Sunday. It's important that they know God. I'm telling you, you what you prioritize in your life, not just your, I'm talking as a parent now because I think about it often, but what you prioritize in your life, you tell other people that's what's important. If church is an addition to an option, an optional addition to your life, your kids think Jesus is an optional addition to their lives. 
Don't you see? We need the Christian community. The book of Hebrews, it's so strong. It says, it says, uh, it pleads with the church to hold one another accountable, to, to bear one another's burdens, to, to uh, not let the, the root of bitterness grow up in our hearts. In other words, we need each other. We cannot walk this walk of faith on our own. And so we need the community. We need to invest ourselves. This, this needs to be, and I don't care if it's Cottondale Baptist Church. If you can't invest in this place, go find somewhere else you can. But I'm telling you, get involved in a local body where you can really invest yourself in. Where people can get to know you, you can get to know them. And we can walk this walk of faith together. It's the only institution that's going to last. And if we and what I'm talking about, many of us, maybe, maybe we have a loved one who is experiencing this draw, this pull away. What do you do if someone you love is being drawn away? Here's what you do. The only things you can do, you pray. That's the most important thing you can do is you pray for them. You pray for their soul. Second thing you do, you plead with them. Plead with them. Plead with them with the urgency that it demands. That, that if they continue down this path, it's going to lead to destruction. Be like Spurgeon's mother. If you perish, it will not be because of ignorance. Reason with them. Paul, he's trying, he's using historical arguments. He's using scriptural arguments. He's using experiential arguments. Paul is making all these different cases in order to try to persuade the Galatians back. And finally, you have to surrender them to the Lord. You pray, you plead, you reason with them. And then you, you have to surrender them to the Lord. You can't change somebody's heart. But you pray, you pray, you plead, you reason. And so first thing we see from this text is this, the loss of love. The loss of love. Number two, the purpose of pride. The purpose of pride. Verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Paul, he's, he's speaking of the motives of these false teachers. What were they doing? He says, they were making much of you. That, your translation almost certainly says something different. It's, it's kind of a difficult word to translate. But it, it can mean to be zealous for or to be jealous for. So one scholar even translated as, as courting, as in, as in pursuing in a way to win them. They were, the Judaizers were courting the Galatians. They were wooing them. They were trying to make much of them. They were trying to win them over to their position. Now, they came and they were teaching them things that were contrary to Scripture, and, and they attacked Paul and tried to get them to turn on Paul. But what Paul is saying is that 
the difference between him and these false Judaizers was one was the, the most important difference, and that is the, it was the difference in their heart. There was the difference in their motives. The Judaizers were wanting to win them. Why? So that they could put another notch in their heretical belt. So that they could win more people over to their side so it could vindicate them. Remember, remember earlier Paul talked about how if you accept circumcision, it takes away the offense of the cross. In other words, if you were a Jew and, and you heard another Jew preaching this false gospel, you would be extremely tempted to believe it. Why? Because if you're, t- if you're telling the Gentiles to be circumcised and believe in Christ, you're not going to offend the other Jews. Because, of course, they want everybody to be circumcised. You don't, these Judaizers still wanted acceptability among their Jewish friends back in Jerusalem. They wanted the, they wanted the Galatians to come to their side, not, not because they loved the Galatians, but to stroke their own ego, to save their own skins. And Paul says, in reality, what they were doing is they were shutting the gospel out from, shutting the Galatians out from the truth. Verse 18, Paul says, it's good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you. That is, Paul, Paul is not saying if anyone who has an opinion about anything, of course you're going to try to persuade other people about it. The difference, of course, is two things. What are the motives of their heart? And is what they're saying true? And Paul says he's got both things that these Judaizers don't have. He would gladly woo the Galatians. He would gladly court the Galatians. He would gladly have them come over to his side but not for his own personal gain, but for the sake of the truth. He's not in it for himself. If someone else came along and preached the truth to the Galatians, he would have no problem with it. He's not trying to start First Baptist Church, a a senior pastor, Paul. He's trying to preach the gospel so that people believe in the risen Christ. And so... The difference between him is his heart's pure. He just cares about Christ. He cares about the, their, the eternal state of their souls. He's not motivated by pride. And so he's trying to win them to him. Because if they are won over to a false gospel, they're lost. We have to beware folks, of the wooing world. We have to beware of the wooing world. I don't think, I think Christians have been very slow historically to, I'm going to say this, Jesus said that the, the sons of this age are often more shrewd than the sons of the age to come. That is, the world sometimes understands these things better than we are. There, there, are, there are disciplines, marketing disciplines, for example, that know how to structure things to get your attention, and you don't even know it's happening. Television, everything is designed with a subtle narrative underneath it that is telling you a story, and you don't even realize you're soaking it in. The world woos. 
And one of the primary way it woos is that it affirms your sinful desire. Think about it. Think about if you have some sin that you're struggling with, and maybe maybe you came, and this, this is very, I heard a thing on the radio today. This guy grew up in a, you know, a legalistic setting where there wasn't much emphasis on grace or relationship with God, but just rule keeping. And he went totally off the deep end, went to the other side and, you know, basically says, you know, it's all about relationship and, oh, it doesn't really matter how you live and et cetera, et cetera. But think about it. If you don't understand grace and if you, if you don't understand the gospel and someone comes to you and you have, you're struggling with this sinful desire and all you've known is condemnation for it and then someone comes along and starts whispering in your ear and says, oh, it's just natural. It's who you are. Everybody feels that way. Of course, without the power of the Spirit, you're going to be wooed. Because why? Because you love your sin. And so do I. And so does everybody without the Spirit of God waging war within them against it. It, it, it makes the world is quick to tell you that your sin is who you are. Jesus speaks a better word. God made man, male and female. He created them in the image of God. He created them. The world woos. It tells you that those who love you but are grieved over your choices are old, foolish prudes, hate-filled bigots. But think about it. Think about it. This is, it's very similar. If I have a certain sinful desire that I want to embrace... The greatest way that I can vindicate my own sinful desire is to get other people to agree with me and to fall in line right behind me in embracing that sinful behavior. The same thing that's happening in Paul's day, people don't change. It's still going on. They, they, when the wooers come, the people, they feel love. They say, oh, I'm finally accepted. Someone finally understands me. It's powerful. It's powerful. But I just want to suggest to you that Jesus understands you better than you understand you. And your desires, if I gave my child everything he ever wanted, it would not make him who he was. It would kill him. God doesn't want to kill you. He wants to save you from yourself. That's what we all need. And these dangers are found in the church, too. Just as people can persuade others for the wrong reasons, we can try to persuade people for the wrong reasons here in the church. It's possible that rather than love of souls, we might go out and, and, and try to get people in our church. Why? Because just because we want a big church. Just because we want the pews filled. It's because we want to be known as that church. Paul didn't care about that. The heart of it all is that we must have, we must have a pure heart, a heart for the glory of God and a heart for the praise of God alone. We must beware of the wooing world. Pride is subtle. Pride is subtle. 
Because when you're proud, you don't know it. And so we always have to beware. We have to stay close to Christ because that keeps you humble. So we see the loss of love and the purpose of pride. Finally, the agony of affection. The agony of affection. Verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for who I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul finally expresses here his own personal anguish that he is experiencing because the ones he loves are turning away from the truth to a false gospel that will lead to destruction. And note the force and intensity of the analogy Paul uses. <laughs> He's willing to say that he is in the agony of childbirth. You ever given birth to a child? I haven't. <laughs> but I've seen a few of them. Does not look pleasant. Think of the agony of soul that Paul is talking about. Yes, mothers, fathers, the agony of childbirth is great. Paul is saying, how much greater agony for our child's rebirth, for their second birth. That's what Paul is agonizing for, that Christ would be birthed in them, that they would be born again, that they would be mature in Christ and rooted in the Lord such that they would be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. It is a literal agony for him to see those he loves walk away from the truth. And that's what love is, by the way. Love is agony. In a world that is full of sin like ours, Love is always a risk because when you bind your heart up in the well-being of another, you're always going to risk it being hurt. But it's a risk. It's a necessary risk that God, through Christ, calls us to take. To love people's soul enough to be bound up in them. To be, it is the easiest thing in the world to do is to not care. Because when you love someone, you become invested in them. You pour yourself in them. You bind up your hope and your, and your well-being into theirs. That's what, that's what Christ did for us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. 
Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Christ calls us to love one another. How? As I have loved you. So what do we do? We pour ourselves, we bind up ourselves with other people, knowing the cost it's going to take, the toll it's going to take on us. Why? Because that's how Christ has loved us. Paul agonized over the Galatians that Christ may be formed in them. Let me ask you something, church. Who do you agonize over? Who are you agonizing over? If you have a family, you better be agonizing over them. Your spouse, your children, your sibling, your parents. If you've got friends that don't know the Lord, neighbors, co-workers. We need to be agonizing. We need to be agonizing over, over uh, not just lost people, but people in our own church, other believers. That they would grow in the Lord. I pray that we would develop relationships in this church where we're binding our hearts together, where we're, where we're getting to know one another, where we're being honest with one another, where we're keeping one another accountable, where you're praying for them. Such that, such that if something happens spiritually to them, you would be utterly devastated. That's what Paul is calling us to. We must be agonizing over people. And I want you to note here Paul's love for the Galatians and and Christian love. It's very different than what the world defines love as. People all the time, you don't have to be a Christian and say, well, why can't we just love one another? But what they have in mind is not love, it's sentimentality. What's the difference? Sentimentality, when they say, I just want you to love me, what they're saying is, I want you to blindly accept me regardless of what I do or what I believe. That's not love. That's indifference. Many believe the lie, the lie that the devil told Eve Many, many years ago, and one, one book put it this way. The lie the devil planted in Eve's mind was that God cannot love us and say no to us at the same time. We can't believe the lie. We have to believe the truth. And we have to love people enough. And yes, you can be, and that's the difference You can be for someone and not agree with everything they believe in. I can take someone who who 
maybe they live a lifestyle that's completely contradictory to the way the Bible teaches. And I could be 100% for them. I am. You should be. You should still pursue them. You should still be friends with them. You should still plead with them to come to Christ. You should still love them. And that, by the way, is love. If you don't care about the eternal destiny of someone's soul, how can you say that you love them? We must not give up. We must keep praying, keep pursuing. We must agonize over those whom God has given us. So what have we seen this morning? The loss of love, the purpose of pride, the agony of affections, of affection. Where did Paul learn to agonize over souls like this? He learned it from Christ. Don't you see? Jesus, Gethsemane, on his knees. His disciples sleep. He's sweating blood in agony over what he's about to do for the people he loves. The Bible says he drank the cup, the cup of God's wrath due for all the sin in the world. And he drank it down to his dregs. And when he had drunk it, he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. If you love somebody, it's going to cost you. But that's what redemption means. Salvation is costly. But that's what we're called to do because as we pay the price of love for other people, they see Christ suffering in ours and they're drawn to him. Jesus agonized for us so we go for other people. And my final appeal is this. Maybe there's someone in this room this morning Maybe the Lord has showed you by the Spirit that Jesus, you never realized it, but Jesus to you has been an optional add-on and not your God, your Savior, and your King. I plead with you like Paul pled for the Galatians. Come home. Come back. See Christ. See Christ's agony on the cross. Don't despise it, but embrace it. Embrace the cross that saved you. Embrace it. Take it up. Take it up. Put it on your own back and go follow Jesus. And you'll find what you were made for.